This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. The leader of ISIS, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, was responsible for a reign of terror across Iraq and Syria and copycat attacks across continents. He was killed in northwest Syria on Saturday after being targeted by U.S. forces. A significant victory for the president and for the United States, as recognized by almost everyone in Congress, the intelligence community, and those who are deeply involved, either professionally or analytically, in counterterrorism operations. This was a big get, one of the biggest priorities of this administration and of the U.S. government writ large over two administrations. This is a moment where President Trump's worst critic should say, well done, Mr. President. It's great that we've gotten al-Baghdadi and killed him. He's a dangerous man, an evil man. The fight against ISIS has to continue. The removal from the battlefield of the Islamic State's leader, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, is the most significant counterterrorism success since the death of al-Qaeda leader Osama bin Laden. Given its significance, I wanted to spend a few minutes in a special episode of the podcast talking about the operation, its implications, and some of the issues surrounding it. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our exclusive sponsor, Lockheed Martin. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is a bonus episode of Intelligence Matters. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The place to start, I think, is the implication for ISIS of al-Baghdadi's demise. I've read a number of commentaries over the past several days that argue that al-Baghdadi's death is largely symbolic, that it will have little effect 
on the future of ISIS because the group is prepared for this moment by diversifying itself, by preparing other leaders to step up. It's almost as if some people are saying that it really did not matter that we removed al-Baghdadi from the fight. I could not disagree more. Baghdadi and the thugs who follow him were responsible for some of the most brutal atrocities of our time. His death marks a devastating blow for the remnants of ISIS, who are now deprived of their inspirational leader, following the destruction of their physical caliphate earlier this year. Let's start with some context, which is the bread and butter, by the way, of an intelligence analyst. So as everyone knows, ISIS lost the last piece of its caliphate earlier this year. That moment in March, I think it was, was a culmination of a fight against ISIS begun by the Obama administration and accelerated by the Trump administration. The caliphate, the land held by ISIS in Iraq and Syria, had slowly shrunk in size over time until the point earlier this year when it was completely eliminated. But the elimination of the caliphate did not mean the elimination of ISIS. In Iraq and Syria, ISIS fighters went underground, and ISIS affiliates around the world, of which there are dozens in dozens of countries, were little affected by the collapse of the caliphate. And importantly, despite the loss of its caliphate only 10 months ago, ISIS was already on the rebound in Iraq and Syria. Fighters were beginning as early as this summer to coalesce, to come together, largely in the border area of northeastern Syria and northwestern Iraq. The estimates on the number of those fighters vary. They range from anywhere from a low of 10,000 to as high as 30,000. Now, bring al-Baghdadi back into this equation, into this discussion. He was a leader on two different levels. One, he was the operational leader of ISIS in Iraq and Syria, where he was guiding the resurgence of the group. And two, he was the global movement's inspirational and ideological leader. So let's think about his death in the context of those two roles. His death, I think, was a setback for the first role. He, of course, is going to be replaced in that role. And it will perhaps, I think, be the death blow to the second role. Because it's going to be really hard to find a leader for the global movement who has his charisma, who has his gravitas, who has his authority. President Trump said yesterday that Baghdadi's caliphate has been, quote, obliterated. And it's true that ISIS lost control of its last remaining patch of territory in Syria in March. But the Pentagon's watchdog says that ISIS still has up to 18,000 members in Syria and Iraq. What does our history with other terrorist groups tell us will happen in this case? A couple of things, I think. One, it will take time for any successor to learn the job to deal with any divisiveness, any debates in the group, to fully grab the reins of power, and to fully feel comfortable exercising authority. The time it takes for that to happen, the more time the better, is a win for us. Secondly, I think al-Baghdadi's removal will create fear among the remaining leadership that maybe they are next to be targeted. This gets them focused on their own security And it gets them to change how they do things, perhaps leading to less effective operations. It reduces their focus on running the organization and planning. This dynamic, I think, may be the most important at the end of the day. And we saw this dynamic play out with al-Qaeda 
over a number of years after the U.S. removed from the battlefield senior leader after senior leader. In fact, in the intelligence take from the bin Laden compound, we saw an obsession on the part of al-Qaeda trying to figure out how the United States was targeting them with drones along the AFPAC border. It really consumed time and effort and focus. And I think that's going to happen here too as people start worrying about their own security. I think I should add here that in terms of these two effects, they can be significantly magnified by the removal of more ISIS leaders. The group has absolutely been damaged by the loss of al-Baghdadi, and it can be damaged even more if we're able to follow up his death with either capturing or killing a number of other senior leaders. That should be a huge focus for us right now. And then finally, on the implications front, what does our history with terrorist groups say about the inspirational leadership role that al-Baghdadi played and what will happen to it? Here, I think we really only have one data point, and that's Osama bin Laden. And in that case, Ayman Zawahiri, bin Laden's successor, was never quite able to replace bin Laden as the inspirational leader of al-Qaeda. And that's why I think perhaps the same is going to happen in the case of al-Baghdadi. I'd be surprised if his successor is going to be able to maintain the stature and the role he played internationally. Shortly after 5 Saturday evening East Coast time, President Trump gathered with his senior advisors in the White House Situation Room as helicopters carrying 70 commandos landed at al-Baghdadi's compound. With warplanes circling overhead, the Delta Force blew a hole in the compound wall, starting a firefight in which five residents were killed and two taken prisoner. That left al-Baghdadi still inside, trying to escape through a tunnel. With the Delta dog in pursuit, he blew himself and the three children up. The Delta commander identified al-Baghdadi and called jackpot at 7.15. It took another hour and 10 minutes to fly back to Iraq, and at 9.23, the president tweeted, something very big has just happened. I think this brings us to the potential intelligence gain from the materials that we acquired at al-Baghdadi's compound and the two ISIS operatives who were captured during the raid. But first, another really slight digression. The intelligence we required and the two operatives that we captured were benefits of the way the president chose to proceed in this case. He could have conducted a massive airstrike against the facilities with no risk or extremely limited risk to U.S. forces. Rather, he decided to put U.S. forces at risk and do a helicopter raid, which I think was exactly the right thing to do because of the many upsides that it had. Doing a helicopter raid as opposed to a massive airstrike allowed you to know with certainty that al-Baghdadi was there and whether he was killed or not. It limited civilian casualties and it allowed us to get our hands on all that intelligence and on those two detainees. What our intelligence community will look for in the intelligence and what they'll hope to gain from talking to the detainees are really five things that range from the tactical to the strategic. So number one, we're going to look for any current attack plotting, attack planning. And obviously, if we find any of that, we will move to disrupt the operations and to defend ourselves. The second thing we're going to look for, and it seems like we're already doing this, is the potential locations of any other senior leaders so that those leads can be actioned so that more individuals 
as we talked about earlier, can be removed from the battlefield. We may have already seen this play out. U.S. forces in a raid that closely followed the al-Baghdadi operation killed ISIS's senior spokesman and one of the top candidates to replace al-Baghdadi. The third thing we're going to look for in the intelligence and in discussions with the detainees is how the organization works today in terms of how money is raised, how it's moved, how communications are done, what the links are like to the affiliates around the world, et cetera, et cetera. You want to know this so that you can leverage it for further intelligence purposes and leverage it to further take action to degrade the group. The fourth thing we're looking for in the intelligence take is understanding the current leadership of ISIS. How are decisions made? Who's important? Who's not? Who's running what? What are the relationships between the people like? Are there opportunities to create splits in the organization? And how would we go about doing that? And then the last piece you look for in the intelligence is what I call the big picture. So the group's long-term plans, its intentions, its ideas, how it sees its own strengths and weaknesses, how it sees its own future, and then we can think about how to take advantage of that. Thank you as well to the great intelligence professionals who helped make this very successful journey possible. Last night was a great night for the United States and for the world. Let me quickly cover a few other issues. The IC and the president, the intelligence community and the president. There's been much talk in the past three years about how the politics of the moment, of how the president's rhetoric about the intelligence community has undermined or possibly undermined the IC. A lot of people have talked about that. I think this operation shows just how much that talk is wrong. You know, two weeks ago, we had on this very show a just-retired senior CIA operations officer, Mark Polymeropoulos, who went out of his way to say that politics largely washes over people at the CIA and they just hunker down and do their job. And I think this is a good example of that. I think... The intelligence job done here by the intelligence community and by the CIA also shows that CIA and the intelligence community are far from the deep state out to get the president that many conspiracy theorists like to argue. If it were that, it would have never put this intelligence picture together because the killing of al-Baghdadi has undoubtedly helped the president politically. So why would a deep state institution designed to undermine him do its job? So I think this puts a stake in the heart of that ridiculous argument. We're also learning more about how the U.S. found al-Baghdadi. General Mazloum Abdi of the Syrian Democratic Forces said the Kurds had an informant within al-Baghdadi's inner circle. The informant reportedly tracked al-Baghdadi for five months and provided a floor plan of his hideout, including the number of guards and location of tunnels. The Kurds. It's becoming more clear every day, based on what the Kurds are saying publicly, based on leaks coming out of the administration, that the Kurds played a major role, perhaps a defining role, in the bringing together the intelligence picture on al-Baghdadi's location. I don't know, of course, because I don't have access to secrets, but I would imagine that any Kurdish assistance occurred prior to the president abandoning the Kurds to Turkish ambitions along the border. So from that perspective, not only did we abandon the very people who led the fight against ISIS in Syria, but we abandoned the very folks who helped us get to al-Baghdadi. It's kind of remarkable. From that perspective, I think it's really important to remember that taking care of our allies needs to be a major theme in our foreign policy. 
because there is not a single national security or threat facing the United States that we can deal with on our own. Success against those threats and challenges in every case is going to require us to work with our allies. So perhaps we should treat them better. Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer said he found out about the raid by watching television. It seems clear that the Trump administration is either reluctant or simply unwilling to keep Congress in the loop on its plan to defeat ISIS. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi called al-Baghdadi's death significant, but added the House must be briefed on this raid, which the Russians, but not top congressional leadership, were notified of in advance. The next issue to comment on, I think, is the issue of informing Congress in advance of the operation, something Speaker Pelosi made an issue about, pointing out that the president informed the Russians, but not Congress. Well, I think the speaker is not quite right on this. The Russians had to be informed about a U.S. operation because we had to deconflict airspace with them to ensure that Russian forces did not shoot at our helicopters. That's kind of important. And I should say there is no obligation on the part of the executive branch to inform Congress ahead of time of a counterterrorism operation. Simply none. What did we do in the case of bin Laden? Then CIA Director Leon Panetta and I did keep the leadership of the two intelligence committees informed about the intelligence picture that was developing along the way. But as we approached May 1st, as we approached the day of the operation, we simply told those four leaders that that thing that we've been telling you about, well, something may be about to happen. It was pretty much those words. It was that vague. And we did make sure that we told both sides of the aisle there should be no telling of one side and not the other. He died after running into a dead-end tunnel, whimpering and crying and screaming all the way. Baghdadi was vicious and violent, and he died in a vicious and violent way as a coward running and crying. And then there's the issue of how the president handled the press conference on Sunday when he announced al-Baghdadi's demise. I've actually taken a lot of criticism from what I think are Trump supporters on Twitter for some of the comments I made on Face the Nation last Sunday about how I thought the president created a bit of locker room atmosphere at the press conference, talking about body parts, talking about taking Syrian oil, a little too much bravado, I thought. While clearing the objective, U.S. forces discovered al-Baghdadi hiding in a tunnel. The assault force closed in on Baghdadi and ended when he detonated a suicide vest. Baghdadi's remains were then transported to a secure facility to confirm his identity with forensic DNA testing. And the disposal of his remains has been done and is complete and was handled appropriately. Here's the best way to describe what I was thinking when I made those comments on Face the Nation. U.S. military personnel for decades and decades have not been allowed to pose for pictures with the dead bodies of the enemy. Why? Because they are ordered to respect the dead even if they are the enemy. Not only is that the right thing to do, but not respecting the dead leads to even more extremism. It increases the revenge factor. And it's interesting to me to note that the Pentagon said on Monday, that the chairman of the Joint Chiefs said on Monday that al-Baghdadi's body was buried appropriately at sea. That was the right thing to do, and that was the right thing to say. At the end of the day, I think the reaction to my comments on Face the Nation was political. There are a lot of people who believe that anything the president does is good, and there are a lot of people who believe that everything he does is bad. And I think we all need to be much more nuanced. The president deserves a great deal of credit here for his decisiveness in ordering the operation 
and as we talked about earlier for the choice he made of the particular operation. But I do believe he could have toned down the press conference a bit. Baghdadi's death will not rid the world of terrorism or end the ongoing conflict in Syria. But it will certainly send a message to those who would question America's resolve and provide a warning to terrorists who think they can hide. The United States, more than any other nation in the world, possesses the power and the will to hunt to the ends of the earth those who wish to bring harm upon the American people. One last issue I want to mention because I think it's important. Since 9-11, the United States has become very good in finding and capturing, killing, in some cases, terrorists who already exist. Finding those people who want to kill us and getting to them first. But we have not been good at all at preventing the creation of terrorists in the first place. There's a lot of reasons for this. One is because when somebody's trying to kill you, that's what you're focused on. So if a gang is trying to break into your house... You're focused on stopping them. You're not thinking about the socioeconomic conditions that created the gang in the first place. The other is that solving this problem of radicalization is not something that the United States government can do on its own. It's something that we need to do with our allies. And it's something that Muslim leaders, Muslim clerics, Muslim teachers, Muslim parents need to take on. So it's not just something we can do. So it's really fallen to the back burner and we've never really focused on it. And until we do, until we get better at preventing the creation of terrorists in the first place, we're going to face an extremist problem for the very, very long term, whether it's called al-Qaeda, whether it's called ISIS, or whether it's called something else. That was a bonus episode of the podcast. Please join us for our next regular episode of Intelligence Matters. This has been the Intelligence Matters Podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Jake Rosen. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morrell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.